You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. And as we consider this morning the text from Matthew 5, which is also called the, the Beatitudes, it's good to consider that it is the first section of a much, much longer sermon, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached on the law. Uh, it describes and elevates the full extent of the law, of what God demands for us to be righteous and be able to be worthy of being in his presence. It also describes the nature and the character of the kingdom of God that we're going to be talking about here in a few moments. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ raises the bar of the law to its fullest extent of the requirements that God has uh, on people to be righteous. And those requirements go beyond just external obedience. Like a lot of people in the time when Jesus was sharing this, um, it goes beyond just outward obedience, but it also penetrates to the depths of our hearts and requires obedience and right motivation from the heart. And the goal with this is that once you see that the high demands that God has for us for righteousness, we despair of our own unrighteousness. And the only logical conclusion is to run to the one, the only one, who could keep God's demands for righteousness. And that is Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one who fulfilled the law fully And sinners like us are driven to him. And when we come to him, we find Jesus Christ himself. So with that in mind, let us go ahead and read the text for this morning. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for sending your Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us from the curse of the law, to fulfill the law for us, and to give us righteousness. Help us, Lord, minister to our hearts as we consider your word this morning. Amen. So before we dive into this morning's text, it is important to define some words, just lay down some overarching concepts so that when we go through the text, we'll be helped um, to interpret it better and to understand it better. So first of all, let's talk about what this passage is not about. Uh, The Beatitudes are not a set of rules that we must keep in order to be a part of God's kingdom. 
It's not a set of rules that if you make sure you go through all of them and check everyone, then you know you'll be part of God's kingdom. Uh, it's also not a set of rules or principles that we need to follow in order to know that we earn God. We earn God's favor. Uh, the Beatitudes primarily describe what Christ has done for us and describe the nature of God's kingdom. So the more we look at this and we don't view it as a set of rules uh, or as a concept of do in order to get, the more we understand that, the more we'll understand what Christ is saying through this passage. Also, we see the word blessed appear in every verse pretty much. Um, so the word blessed or blessing does not refer only to just a, a feeling of contentment or happiness. We know that, that that can be fleeting. All kinds of circumstances in your life can take your happiness or your uh, feeling of contentment away. So the word blessing here doesn't describe happiness, but rather it refers spiritual. It refers to spiritual well-being. So having God's approval um, and, and thus delighting in a communion with God. So in, in a sense, blessing or blessed refers to people who have peace with God. So let us understand that term that way. We also read reference to God's kingdom uh, or inheriting the earth. And God's kingdom refers literally to Christ's kingdom, which is comprised of the people he saved unto himself. Um, it is the church of the redeemed now, and it will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth when he comes in his kingdom, uh, when we will be there with him in the new Jerusalem. And lastly, a good overarching concept to understand as we read this passage, especially passages that deal with law, it is important for us to distinguish between law and gospel. Now, this is important because those are two biblical concepts. They're very important. They're both true, but we should never mix those together because if we do, we end up in trouble. Uh, as we say often here at CBC, um, that is a very important distinction. The law re refers to all that God requires um, for us in order to be righteous. And the gospel refers to everything that Christ has done for us, for our righteousness. The law says do and live. The gospel says done by Christ. So now live. The law is due. The gospel is done. So having these two categories clear in our minds will help us better understand uh, the passage today. So with that, let us dig into the text. So verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, some brief comments on this. The fact that Christ is going up the mountain is not casual. It does evoke the imagery of Moses going up Mount Sinai where he received the law from God. So it's not casual that Christ is going up the mountain and he is delivering a message to reveal the full extent and heart of the law. Furthermore, he, he's sitting down and he's talking to his disciples. He's not just talking to a random crowd that assemble around him. He is talking to believers, people who had committed to follow him. Verse 2 says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but being poor is not a blessing. Uh, at least I never thought about it like that. Uh, it's never considered a blessing, but in God's kingdom, those who are poor in spirit are blessed. So how is that? 
So being poor in this verse refers to spiritual neediness, being spiritually helpless, being powerless in your spirit, that wretchedness, those who are downtrodden. Now, we know that every person, the Bible teaches that it is destitute in God's sight. We completely and utterly lack anything that will make us qualified to be accepted in God's kingdom. We lack righteousness, right? We are sinners who lack righteousness and which God requires in his law to live with him. So how is being poor in spirit a blessing then? How are we blessed in that? And that is because those who see and acknowledge their sinfulness, their spiritual poverty, are driven to humbly depend on Christ and his work. And in Christ, they receive God's favor. So that's how being poor in spirit drives you to Christ. And in that, you're blessed. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, that seems like a contradiction. I don't feel blessed when I'm mournful. It does not seem like a blessing to me. Uh, we typically mourn where something hurts. Uh, we grieve over maybe failure or loss uh, or damage that we have caused to others or that has been caused to us. Now, in the context of this passage, the mourning seems to indicate mourning over our own sin uh, or perhaps mourning over uh, the failure of mankind to give proper glory to God. So how are those who mourn blessed? So when we mourn for our sin, we are brought to the end of ourselves and we're pushed into the arms of Christ. And as we're in the verse, those who mourn are blessed because they shall be comforted. When we're brought to the arms of Christ, we find comfort. And this comfort is not just words of affirmation or comfort. This comfort comes in powerful works. Christ mourned and suffered for you as we sang, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. He came to suffer for you, for your sins. He mourned your sins. He mourned the sins of his fallen creation. And he didn't stop there. He fulfilled the law and he gave you his righteousness. He clothed you with righteousness. So now you're comforted by knowing that you are his. And remember, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And he is continually, continuously sanctifying you so that you may walk in his way. So we look forward to our final comfort that one day we will be with him face to face, saved to sin no more, and in his eternal comfort. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will find comfort. Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now in this verse, Christ is most likely quoting from Psalm 37, verses 10 and 11. It says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you will look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now here, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I looked it up and the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for meek means to bow. To bow down in a sign of humility. Now, being meek is not being weak. It's not being um, a doormat. It's not lacking assertiveness. It's not letting people walk all over you. Uh, sometimes there's sort of a caricature that people uh, have of Christians. You know, say, so, well, aren't you, aren't you supposed to turn the other cheek and let me run over you? 
And sometimes we're confused by that. Uh, meekness does not mean being a, a doorman. But uh, meekness refers to uh, being God-dependent. Um, it is an attitude of submission and humility towards God. So surrendering our will and our power to our Lord and trust Him instead of our own human ability. So let us consider our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at other instances in which that same Hebrew word uh, is used, it sometimes it is rendered as meek, sometimes rendered as gentle or humble. But the majority of the times that word is used, it is used to refer to Christ in one way or another. He is the one who humbled himself and was obedient to the Father in all things, even unto death. And let me ask you this. Was he defrauded when he submitted himself to the Father? When he accomplished the will of the Father to send him to accomplish the law, to die for us, to give us his righteousness, and to one day to sanctify you and to glorify you. When he did all that, was he defrauded? Was he let down and disappointed in the end? No. Jesus Christ is a reward. He inherited his kingdom and a people to himself, which is the church, which is us. And where is he now? He sits at the right hand of the Father while his enemies are made his footstool. The brothers and sisters in God's kingdom, sinners who humble themselves and trust in Christ by faith, they are united to Christ. Because Christ has inherited his kingdom, and because we are in him, ours is the kingdom too, and we shall inherit that as well in Christ. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, this ongoing theme, being hungry and thirsty does not sound like a blessing, does not sound pleasant in, in the least. Now, uh, incorrect way of viewing this passage would be thinking of hungering and thirsting for righteousness as a sense of having this zeal toward seeking to be righteous and make sure that everyone around you also has a zeal for righteousness. But rather, in this passage, to hunger and thirst for righteousness refers to a lack of those two uh, of, of righteousness. Because think about it: you're hungry and you thirst when you don't have water and food. The, this describes a lack of righteousness, right? So in the earthly kingdom, those who hunger and thirst usually live very hard lives and eventually they end up dying because they lack what they need. But in God's kingdom, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and come to Christ, they receive it, full stop. They will be satisfied in all their spiritual needs and all the things that they lack. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Isaiah 51, excuse me, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So, brothers and sisters, how are we blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness? That is because when we come to Christ, we come in faith. He satisfies all of our needs for righteousness. There's no need to bring money. There's no need to bring our works that will never be enough to meet the debt of sin that we had incurred against God. When we come to Christ in faith, we come to the end of ourselves. We are given 
his righteousness. And we will be satisfied. When we come to Christ in faith, we're united to Christ. And having Christ and being united to him means that we also have all his merits, all the things that he earned, we have as well. Just like he is righteous, we are righteous before God. We're also forgiven. We are redeemed. And he is sanctifying us, conforming us to his image. And we will, we will one day be glorified, which is to be with new bodies and a new mind in the kingdom of heaven with Christ forever. In verse 7, it, sees, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, if we read this verse at face value, we can run into trouble. We, because we can tend to perhaps want to understand it as, if you are merciful, you will receive mercy. And if that's the case, we are doomed. Because if the requirement to receive mercy is to be merciful, then we're done for. Because who can be consistently merciful enough to merit mercy themselves? How much mercy do you need to give? And for how long and how consistently Consistently, before you know you found mercy? But let us take heart in knowing that Christ has shown us mercy. Now, if we think about it, think of the parable of the two debtors from Luke 7. I'll summarize it for you. But Christ was invited to the house of a Pharisee, and he tells them this parable about these two debtors, that one owed a very small nominal sum of money, the other one owed a debt that was just the entire work of his life and then some. It was a huge, unpayable debt. And the money lender forgave them both. And then Christ asked the Pharisee around him, and he said, who do you suppose loved him most, the, the lender? The Pharisee said, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven much. And that, and this verse explains that in God's kingdom, God's mercy is not a reward given to those who show mercy, but rather that those who recognize the magnitude of the mercy that he has shown them will treat others as their father has treated them with mercy. So praise God that in Christ we did not receive the punishment that we deserve, but received mercy instead. So let us treat one another as fellow debtors of mercy and love one another because we have been forgiven of much. Therefore, let's love much the Lord and let that drive our love for one another. Verse 8, blessed are, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now the word pure can be rendered as unmixed, untainted, free from sin and guilt. And if you think about it, truly think about it, purity is just being completely clean and holy. Now, that is a requirement to be in the presence of God. God requires that people who are in his presence requires them to be pure. So if we have to try to achieve that on our own, we are doomed. God is infinitely holy and sinful humans will just simply be destroyed and perish in his presence by just even seeing a glimpse of his glory. So how is this good news for us? How are we blessed by this? And that is because Christ is pure. And in him, we had made pure before God. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So brothers and sisters, Christ covered our sins with his blood and made us righteous as if we had never sinned. That is how God sees us now on, on Christ's account. So now, because we have been made righteous, we have been united to Christ. We have seen God. Let's read from John 14, verses 8 through 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And one day, brothers and sisters, this is the hope that we have. We are made righteous right now by the grace of God, through faith, by the work of Christ on the cross. But one day, dressed in blood-washed robes and with new bodies, free from sin, we will see him face to face. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, people pay lip service to peace all the time, but mankind is in Adam. That means they're unregenerate. That means that mankind, humanity, is alienated from God. And sin and the fruit of sin is all that we know. Uh, there is an old song by the band Megadeth. And yes, you're hearing Megadeth quoted today. The title of a song is Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? And that title always struck, struck me because it is so, it is so accurate, Right? Peace sells. Uh, politicians, religious leaders, people are yearning for peace, protesting wars. We want peace. We want peace. But ever since I can remember, there is a war going on somewhere in the world or we're involved in one or even in, in our society, in our community, in our families, even in our congregation. We are constantly at each other's throats. Why is that? So let us take a look at God's word and search for the answer. Why do we quarrel? James 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? Your desire, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Brothers and sisters, in our natural state, in our natural sinful state, we can't help it but to pursue our passions that are driven by a sinful and fallen heart and mind. But we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer Aaron, in our sin. We are now in Christ, united to him. And in Christ, we are reconciled to God. He is the great peacemaker that accomplished peace with God and his enemies, whom we once were. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin and its passions, but we are now slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to do good and to do righteous things. So because of Christ and the peace that he procured, we are now called the sons of God. So brothers and sisters, let us pursue peace with one another and those outside of the church because we have been saved by the Prince of Peace. Now verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against, against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, these 
two verses I grouped together because to me they seem the most contradictory of all. Uh, how is persecution, how is being reviled, how is being falsely accused of ever a blessing? If you look at the history of the world, any person, any people group that has been persecuted, reviled, and lied against them, they've been erased, killed, eliminated. They are no more. So how is that a blessing? And as I was preparing for this message, I thought of maybe comments to make about us perhaps enduring persecution or revilement or people in other countries that experience it hard and heavy for the name, for the sake of Christ. But at the end of the day, these two passages are not about us. They're about Christ himself. These passages are a blessing because Christ suffered for us. Notice that in verse 10, it talks about persecuted because of righteousness. And in verse 11, it talks about being persecuted on the account of Christ. Notice how those two go together. Christ and righteousness are one and the same. Jeremiah 23 says, uh, uh, verses 5 and 6, the Lord is our righteousness, right? So it says, behold, the, day, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up from David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So blessed. So we are blessed in Jesus, the righteous one, because he is the one who suffered for us and was victorious over sin and over the wicked. So because we are in him, we too will endure until the end and we will dwell in his kingdom forever. So as I seek to go into the second part of today's message and try to tie all these things together and try to give us some handles to understand this passage well and some helpful ways, hopefully, to, uh, to live in the light of the truths that we are hearing uh, this morning. So first of all, when we consider the Beatitudes, the passage that we read and that we're studying this morning, if you forget anything I said this morning, remember this. The Beatitudes are ultimately about Christ. Again, they're not things for us to do primarily, but they point us to Christ. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields his fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Now, who is the blessed man of Psalm 1? Who is the blessed? Who is the blessed in Matthew 5? Is it us? And when you look at the Bible honestly and you look at yourself, we have not done any of these things consistently. These things are not consistently true of any of us and never will. But I tell you who this verse is talking about. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the blessed man. He is the blessed one. So then we conclude that Christ is at the center of all these beatitudes. He is the one who made himself poor for us. Christ mourned for our sin and his fallen creation. Christ was meek and he submitted his will to God. Christ thirsts and hungered. Christ is the merciful one. Christ is the pure in heart. Christ is the peacemaker. Christ suffered persecution, revilement, and slander for us. So Christ 
is the Beatitudes. He is the blessings incarnate. So you think, well, Rob, thank you. This was a good message. I appreciate it. Very insightful. But uh, how does this help me in my life? On a Tuesday morning, when I'm trying to wrangle my family or my work, on a Thursday afternoon when I'm dealing with problems, when I'm dealing with my own sin, how does any of this help me? So I'll attempt to answer that question in this next section. So the Beatitudes teach us that those who realize and understand that they are poor in spirit, that they lack righteousness and mourn over their sin, they are blessed. So how can that be? And that is because only when we come to the end of ourselves and come to Christ, we receive grace and mercy. That is when we try to, when you stop trying to clean up our act, to try to make us feel good about ourselves through our actions, through our works, trying to do either, even if it's good things like charity work or anything like that, just trying to make us acceptable to God by our works or even deceiving ourselves that by our works, we think, you know what? Sure, I might be a sinner, but I'm pretty good. You know, that is, that is deluding yourself. That is a delusion. That is us lying to ourselves because nothing that we can do will satisfy this, the debt of sin that we owe God, only the work of Christ for us. So when we finally come to the realization that we are poor, that we lack everything needed to be accepted by God, and we come to Christ in faith, what do we receive? Grace and mercy. So let us think back to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we already referred to the parable of the, do, of the two debtors, but that parable is inserted in a, in a larger uh, accounting. And I'll summarize it for you, but Jesus was invited to the house of a Pharisee. And when he was talking and discussing with his Pharisee, a woman comes in with a flask of alabaster, which was a uh, an expensive spice or a type of perfume. And she comes in into this house uninvited and she comes to Christ. And with her tears, she washes Christ's feet and with her hair, she wipes them. And people around him were thinking, hmm, if this Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is for she's a sinner. And it was true. Those women is referred to as a sinner. Most likely she was a prostitute. But she knew she was a sinner. Her conscience told her she was a sinner. The law told her that she was a sinner. And if there were any doubts, society told her she was a sinner. She knew that good and well. She wasn't going to try to clean up her act. She came straight to the feet of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Did he say, this is good, this is fine and well. Go do a few things. Clean up your act. Clean up your reputation. Try to do some good and then come back and we'll talk about it. No. That is not what Christ told her. Christ told her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. So brothers and sisters, who are sinners who understand themselves to be sinners come to Christ in faith. They are given the same response. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Go in peace. And just as those people, we are the same. The Spirit of God opened our eyes to our need of Him so that we may trust in Jesus and receive His saving grace. And this is true for our salvation, but it's also true for us 
as it applies to our daily lives as believers, even as now. And this is why, so when we read the Beatitudes in the light of the law and the gospel, we are reminded of how sinful and how needy we truly are. And this is a constant reminder that we need, not just for salvation, but in every day of our lives, in our walk as a believer. When we read in the Beatitudes in the light of the gospel, our sense of self-righteousness is crushed and the grace of God is magnified all the more. And because when we are more aware of the extent of our sinfulness, then God's saving mercy is magnified all the more in our hearts. And brothers and sisters, this is what God uses to drive us unto righteous living. It's not, well, you're saved. Great. Well, now go do all these things. No, we always are casting ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And he is the one who gives us grace. He is the one who gives us forgiveness. And he's the one who sanctifies us and transforms us. So this message of the gospel, law and gospel that you hear Sunday after Sunday, you think, this is great, but can we talk about something else one of these days? Maybe something practical? And nothing is more practical than hearing the law and the gospel Every Sunday, every Sunday, at least keep doing this Sunday after Sunday until we die, until he takes us home. Because that is what God uses to drive us into righteousness as he continuously works in our hearts and transforms us through sanctification. Now, the law brings our sin uh, to light, and that drives us to Christ, where we are met by his infinite grace. And brothers and sisters, we need our sins to be brought to light every Sunday. We delude ourselves, we deceive ourselves that somehow we're better, somehow we're good, or that comparative righteousness that, sure, sure, I'm a sinner, but I'm better than them. I'm better than that. I have it more together. No, we need to be constantly reminded of our poor and needy and our lack before, uh, our poverty and need and our lack before God and be crushed and be built back up in God's grace, in God's forgiveness, in God's mercy. Romans 5, verse 20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So brothers and sisters, by grace, Christ made us righteous, and we are constantly being transformed as he lead us into eternal life. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit is working in us. He's making us into the image of Christ. He is doing that. We're not doing it. We're not helping it. Kind of like when you're little and your parents are holding a big load and kids sometimes put a hand on it and say, I'm helping. Not even that. The Holy Spirit is doing this in our, in our lives. So, as we engage by faith with the ordinary means of grace that God has given us, which is what we do at church every Sunday, engaging with the singing of the hymns, coming here, sitting under the preaching of the word, hearing the law and the gospel every Sunday, taking the Lord's Supper, reminding us that our salvation has been accomplished, that our faith is not a myth, this is real. Christ did die for you, and you're encouraged and assured by that. Encouraged also through the ordinary means of baptism and also the fellowship with the saints, when all those things, we're engaging with those in faith, the Holy Spirit uses all those things to sanctify us. And then the fruit of the Holy Spirit will show in our own lives in the way that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. So that's how we apply this to our lives. Perhaps you hear this and you think, 
kind of disappointing. I was hoping for a list, something I can grab onto. But uh, this is gospel. There is no do for you. All this has been done. So continue to trust in Jesus Christ. Continue to show up in faith faithfully and continue to rely on him and depend on him to walk in his ways and allow him to transform you. So because when we are, when the transforming work of Christ happens in our lives, that affects everything. Every aspect, the way we live, the way we think, it transforms everything. So we don't need to be here and give each other five ways to do better in X, Y, Z. Sure, there are times for practical conversations, for advice. Those are good things. But ultimately, what will change you is the one who's changing your heart. It is Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the engagement in the means that we just discussed. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a process. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs. Sometimes you're going to throw up your hands in the air and say, God, can I get a break? Can I get a break? Sometimes our battle with sin, our battle with our own fallenness, with our own flesh is intense. Some, some things we drag forever, some difficulties, some sins, some struggles, some temptations. We drag forever sometimes, praise God. We are, as it, it would seem, miraculously delivered from those things. Sometimes as we mature, we don't struggle with certain things. Sometimes we do. So it is a process. It is full of ups and downs, but the Lord is working in your life. And one day the work will be complete. And that will be when we are in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies in the presence of God. But until then, brothers and sisters, for today, be encouraged by this, that we are united to Christ in all his merits. Everything Christ earned is yours because you're united to him. In him, ours is the kingdom of heaven. In him, we have been comforted. In him, we will inherit the earth and the new Jerusalem. In him, we shall be satisfied in our spirit. In him, we shall receive mercy and grace and give mercy. In him, we will see God. And in him, a reward is great in heaven. Not by any of our works, but because and entirely of everything that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So brothers and sisters, because we are in Christ, we are the blessed ones. Let's pray.